you should definitely make videos and content that people would be searching for. If you just make things that are vlogs about your daily life or title things in a way that they're not going to be searched for at all, then that's not going to help you get views and start to grow your audience and get subscribers. Hey everybody, welcome back to Creative How, the podcast for curious creatives. Today we have Caleb Wojcik, who's what I would call a new generation of video maker. He's web-based, digital in nature, and he's teaching everyone how to make better videos for the web. On that note, he's actually created a physical product as well called the SwitchPod, which is going to revolutionize the video industry. Hope everyone enjoys lots of info in this one. Caleb, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, look, uh, we're, we're, we're kind of big fans over here, um, and we're really intrigued not only because of, of the filmmaking aspect, but how you've turned that that sort of uh, profession and, and what you do day to day and have actually brought it to life almost in a, uh, a tangible product way. So we'll get into all that. But again, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been quite the journey to go from college to a day job I didn't really like to working for an entrepreneur to being an entrepreneur and now making physical products and it's just been a been a wild ride over the last 10 years or so so Caleb video I guess in many forms has been um, something that's been important for a long 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 time but more recently um, online YouTube um, just a, the way that brands and people communicate has been done more and more through video so what's your background there how did you get into it I mean, I, I dabbled a little bit when I was growing up. I made, you know, one video for my church, and then I made another video in a high school class, but I never really took it very seriously. I mean, back then, there were less tools. I was actually filming on cameras that had tapes, and then you'd have to run the tape, and the, the Mac would, like, transcode it into an actual digital file. So it was just, like, way harder back then when I was growing up. So I only dabbled a little bit with it. And then when I was in college, I did have a couple projects where I made videos and I really enjoyed it. I was the one in the lab from my team that spent a lot of time editing it. And I also did some video work for a sports station, but I had no idea what I was doing. I'd be on, I'd be on the physical basketball court for Michigan state basketball or uh, like on the field for the Detroit Tigers with a camera. I didn't really know what I was doing and trying to get, you know, highlights for, for the nightly news. But from there, it kind of just progressed into I, I got a regular job. I got a nine to five finance job at a big company because I didn't really think that video was something that I could make a living off of. So you got inspired to, um, at some point leave that job, uh, and you went to work with an entrepreneur and, um, how did you get the video gig there? I mean, did that just kind of evolve from that or did you actually approach that person or were you given that gig because you had video chops? No, that was a minor portion of my job actually was, was video at all. When I started working for Corbett Barr, uh, he, he ran a website called Think Traffic and eventually he and I and one other person started a website called Fizzle where it was entrepreneurial training for online businesses and people that ran websites and blogs. And through working with them for a few years, that's when I started to build up my video chops. So I was filming online courses for Fizzle 
I was editing interviews that we were filming. I was learning how to film with multiple cameras and do lighting and audio and all that kind of stuff. So working with him for three and a half years is what enabled me to build up the video skills and then go out on my own and start running a video production company with a bunch of clients. And what is it about filmmaking and video that you're really drawn to as a creative medium? I mean, if I wasn't spending money on video games growing up, I was buying movies. And so I've always really liked going to the movies, watching movies, kind of geeking out about the behind the scenes features of all the discs on Lord of the Rings and that sort of thing. So I think I always had an interest in it. And I think it's just that there's partially the nerdy part of it, all the, all the gear, the tech, the equipment, and all the stuff you have to learn about how to edit video that interests me as well as more of the storytelling, the visuals, things being high resolution and pretty to look at. And it's also just fun to watch videos, I think, and go to movies and watch your favorite television shows. So it's become such a big part of the entertainment industry and culture that we're all used to. And now that we all have phones in our pocket that have internet that you can watch video in, in seconds, I think it's just kind of building on top of each other as well. So I think we, we obviously definitely agree with, um, the fact that it's really fun to, to do those things and it's really complicated. Um, you know, just in that answer, you articulated several different careers that people have actually, whether it's a producer or an editor or a shooter, et cetera. But how did you have the idea for ending up helping, um, or teaching other people to make great videos? I think it just came down to a, a need so when I was working at Fizzle and I was meeting a lot of people that ran online businesses, whether they had websites or podcasts or what had you, they were growing audiences and a lot of them wanted to transition into video. So into making YouTube videos, into growing an audience that way, or they wanted to make videos for launches of courses or actually filming the courses themselves, or they started to host live events and they needed those to be recorded. and it came out of that need of my friends and my network that I had built working at Fizzle were a bunch of people that needed different types of videos. And so those are the people that I started making videos for. And then from there, I started getting the questions of, you know, what camera should I buy and how do you do this? And knowing that I also wanted to build my own audience and have my own sources of income from that was where the idea for actually teaching video came from. And your your whole platform is called DIY Video Guy. Um, where'd you come up with that? Why? You know, uh, partially it's because my last name is hard to spell, and I, <laughs> I also knew that um, having something that you know maybe rhymed like that does and has an explanation of like I'm someone that will teach you how to make videos by yourself was kind of the thing. I know there are like a lot of DIYs used for a lot of things like going to Home Depot and building your kid their own treehouse or what have you. Right. And I'm not building actual cameras or video tools. It's more teaching people how to film videos by themselves because I've been able to build a business where I show up by myself with a lot of gear and equipment and I can set up the lighting and get the cameras going and record the audio and do everything. And then now I have an editor that helps me with projects as well, but I was also at the beginning editing all the videos. So I think you're able to do now very high quality videos by yourself 
And so that's why you see the rise of a platform like YouTube that, that enables that. Were you naturally a, a tinkerer growing up? Is that, I mean, cause it sounds like you're learning a lot on the fly. So there's this healthy level of curiosity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had, I had a lot of Lego, I had connects and I used to play with micro machines and build like forts and things like that when I was a kid. And then as I got older, I started to build my own computers when I was in high school and try to build web pages. And so I was always more of a nerdy kid that would play video games um, when I got home from sports practice. And so, yeah, I would say I tinkered with stuff, not in the like shop class kind of way or right. auto kind of way, but more in the the nerdier computer way. So that, that qualifies as a tinkerer building your own computer. <laughs> I would say so. I would say so. Um, so Caleb, you say on your site, on your site, you say videos for the web a lot. Um, and why did you narrow it down so specifically to the web? Um, you know, there's all kinds of things that people can do, whether it be making training videos that are shown in corporate cultures all the way up to making, you know, feature films. Why did you focus so specifically on videos for the web? I think that came down to just kind of explain to people that I don't make commercials or I don't make things that go on television and, and having people identify that that's what they want is they just want videos that are going to go online on their website, on a social media platform or are an online course or what have you. That's kind of the moniker that I used to kind of describe that. Um, just to kind of show that those are the types of videos I make, not necessarily TV commercials or shows or movies or what have you just to just show that I'm, I work with smaller businesses that have a need for web content. Right. So as you're, as you're sort of gaining traction here and you're getting more and more of the quote unquote know-how are those types of projects aspirational for you? Yeah, definitely. I think that some of my favorite projects have been ones that are more documentary storytelling kind of projects. Like one I did with a company called ConvertKit is called I'm a Blogger. And we went and we told the stories of nine different uh, bloggers or people that run an online audience-based business through a podcast maybe or a YouTube channel how they make a living, how they got into it. You know, some of the, some of the questions they get from their parents about like, so how do you actually make money? Those types of things. That was, that's a very aspirational project for me and was more creatively interesting than maybe filming online courses and things like that. But I also think that I bring a certain sense of knowledge to actually best visually show whatever it is someone's trying to do. So when it is an online course and they're trying to teach something extremely intricate like knitting or calligraphy or food photography or what have you, what I bring to that is knowing the best way to capture that on video and edit it and showcase it. So it, it's like you're sitting right there and someone's teaching you or even better because you can zoom in even closer. But I, I'm creatively fulfilled by all the the different kinds that I do. Are you, um, and just one more question about the, I'm a blogger series. Were you brought that project and they said, Hey, Caleb, we want you to do this type of execution and narrative, or were you at the table in terms of the ideation and, and the conceptual development? It was a little bit of both. It was something that, uh, my friend, Nathan Berry, who started convert kit has wanted to do, you know, cause he's always 
as a blogger for years, kind of wanted to legitimize the profession a little bit. And that had been something we just talked about in passing when we were together at conferences or what have you. And it, that idea kind of kickstarted as like, well, what if we, what if we do some written interviews and you film some and we put them in a coffee table book, which they eventually made. And so it, it's kind of a little bit of both of having initial conversations with him and then him coming back with the idea of, you know, telling their stories visually. Um, so Caleb, when we, uh, did the research on DIY video guy, um, you know, we both thought it was a really cool idea and you could just stick with sort of teaching via YouTube, but you've basically got a multi-distribution model. You've got uh, content on YouTube, you've got your own podcast, you've got a newsletter. So when you started the business, were you thinking specifically about YouTube or did you have this idea then of making it sort of, uh, multi-distribution, I'll say. I had started blogging back in 2010, 2011 about personal finance. And I did that for a couple years. And I felt like blogging was the way to grow an audience at the time because how I consumed personal finance advice was through someone's blog. And so I thought that was what I wanted to do. And then eventually I started consuming podcasts that were about entrepreneurship because I wanted to be an entrepreneur and leave my corporate job. And so then eventually I ended up starting a podcast where I interviewed people that, you know, wanted to also be entrepreneurs and leave their cubicle. Um, I called that cubicle renegade. And then I, I like what was still kind of building my confidence over those years. So from 2010 to 2014 or so kind of building my confidence in my voice written, both written and an audio being on a podcast and slowly over time, I eventually got more comfortable with just myself and talking and then eventually being on camera through a lot of the courses I filmed with fizzle. And so at that point I knew that where people are going to look for things like camera reviews or tutorials was YouTube. And I also think that the best way to learn something is by seeing it visually and hearing someone talk about it at the same time. So that was where I knew YouTube was going to be a big part of my brand of helping and teaching other people how to make videos by themselves. But there's also things that you can't necessarily get into in shorter YouTube videos. So that's why I have a podcast as well. And then for search engine optimization and other reasons, I make sure that each of the podcasts and the YouTube videos I put out also have a post on my website that tries to convert people to a newsletter because then I can sell stuff easier over email than you can to your YouTube audience. And so it's kind of developed over time just based on seeing other people and how they've run their audience based businesses. Gotcha. Yeah. This is a really great, like omni channel, I guess, approach that you're, you're instituting and you said it, you've, you've developed it over time. Is there a, a place that you might recommend people go um, to sort of maybe get a crash course on, on a lot of what you just said? A crash course on just like how to build an audience yeah, or approaching yeah. it from a multi-channel approach that you, that you just mentioned. I, I can't, th I can't think of one specific resource, but one piece of advice that I would give would just be to start with whichever one already has people like doing that or looking for those things. I think YouTube is in general, probably the best place to get started because people want videos when they're searching for help. And so they'll go to Google or they'll go to YouTube 
and they'll search for whatever it is you're trying to help people with. And that's where you want your video to show up. And the, the subscribers don't really matter as much in the beginning for YouTube. What matters is you're making videos with titles that people are going to be searching for. And so some of my early videos are specific pieces of gear or equipment that I already owned and I reviewed it or I taught people how to use it. And those are videos that started to gain traction because people kept searching for them and they still get views to this day. But when I do a video that's more of a vlog or more lifestyle or more timely, those videos don't get views over the long term. So I think my best piece of advice is just pick a platform that's going to be where people go to learn or need your help. And typically that's YouTube and kind of stick to that and then grow from there. So one more thing before we get talking to you about SwitchBod, um, in terms of uh, the creative aspect of filmmaking, I guess this is a two part question. Are you doing uh, any writing? Like, I don't know. Um, screenplays, what have you, are you, are you trying to get more, um, the narrative skill set uh, developed or maybe you already have it? I'm just saying, you know, I mean, that's definitely a dream of mine. It more comes down to, uh, time or what, what people are paying me to do. So I, I haven't yet written out a screenplay. I have ideas for narrative things I'd like to do, and I'd like to move more into narrative or at least experiment with it as I have time or more money or freedom or flexibility to do so. But I do end up writing uh, scripts for my videos or my camera reviews and tutorials are heavily outlined and planned out. Uh, Launch videos, I'll be helping to write the script for those, like the SwitchPod launch video that was scripted out and I worked on that with Pat and other products and things that I help people launch. I'm helping script and massage those. So there is still a lot of writing that happens, but it's not in a kind of narrative script kind of way. And then just, we've had a a couple other filmmakers on the podcast and we've always asked this question, what do you call yourself? Are you a director of photography? Are you a cinematographer? Are you, uh, you know, what, what, what is the label you are most, most prefer, I guess? I mean, I would love to call myself a cinematographer someday and just focus on that or be a director. But I think until I have that title in the credits of something, I don't feel necessarily right saying that. Um, filmmaker would be a general term, but I also don't really make films. So I usually just say that I'm a video creator or I run a video production company. And that's how I explain what I do, because I do think it can be pretentious to say that you are something that you don't actually do, even if you want to be doing that. Right. Um, Real quick question, Caleb. So I think it's really interesting that you're teaching other people how to make videos. And I'm just wondering if you've learned any lessons from the community that you've created or gotten um, tips or even just feedback that changed the way that you think about things. Oh, definitely. I would say that because I didn't go to film school, I'm completely self-learned or self-taught, whichever way you want to say it, from the internet, from from online courses that I've signed up for, whether that's lynda.com or a specific course from an individual person or live workshops I've gone to, watching so many YouTube videos and listening to podcasts about filmmaking, about making videos. As far as important lessons, I think it's really important to share the behind the scenes of, of whatever it is you're doing. We've learned that a lot with the SwitchPod launch that we just went through. 
if we had not been building Buzz before the day we launched, we would have had way less people interested in it. And so sharing the behind the scenes, sharing a, a vlog of launch day when we were you know, getting everything ready to go and showing how we were taking the product photos and all that kind of stuff, I think people could do a better job of that because I think audiences really eat that up. Maybe not quite as much as the finished product, but if you bring people along for the journey, even that's just on Instagram stories or photos on Twitter, people get excited about what's coming. So I think building the buzz, doing behind the scenes, people really love that stuff. I was just going to say, is there um, different media, uh, social media channels and apps that lend themselves to the, that sort of content? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Instagram, either posts or Instagram stories are good for that, or just posting to Twitter or Facebook or wherever your audience is already. Um, and you, you could publish full behind the scenes videos on a platform like YouTube as well. It kind of depends on where your audience is already. And that would be the platform and kind of find a way that is uniquely you to share those things. Great. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit, um, talk about, uh, switch pod. And I think maybe before we get into where you got the idea and the inspiration, can you just talk to the audience about what exactly this product is? Yeah. So it's a handheld, really slim tripod that also converts into more of a handheld kind of vlogging mode position of having your camera out at arm's length. Um, so if you, if you think about it, it's kind of like a tripod and a, a slimmer, fancier selfie stick in a way of being able to film yourself. But what it does is it quickly changes between the modes really fast. You can switch between it being a tripod and it being handheld in about a second. And that's the problem we wanted to solve for people that do film themselves or do vlog because the other solutions out there are really slow to switch between those modes are really frustrating or they break over time and they're made of plastic and they fall apart. And so we wanted to make a durable, long lasting, fast solution for being able to hold a camera out in front of you to film yourself and be able to set it down in a tripod. So that's what a switch pod is. So, so take us back to the inspiration point and walk us through the sort of the early phase of that. Yeah. The, the first time I kind of thought about it was I was at a conference called vid summit in late 2017 and I was standing next to Pat Flynn who I do a lot of video work with. And I just kind of turned to him cause we we're at this conference where there's all these people with their cameras on uh, a, a Joby gorilla pod, which is the thing that everybody uses where it is bendable and it has all these little ball shapes that make the tripod legs and they kind of form it into the the shape that they want to use it in. But then when they have to set down their camera or try to put it back into a tripod, it takes 15, 20, 30 seconds to do so to get it properly set up. So the camera doesn't fall over. And I turned to him and we were just kind of watching people do this. And I just said, there's gotta be a better way. There's gotta be a way where you can switch between these two modes really quick, really fast. And then we started thinking about, you know, different ways we could do it. And th this is just something I do in general, where if something bothers me, I'll try to think of a way to, that it could be better, but I never go further than just complaining about it or, you know, <laughs> talking to the person next to me or my wife and she rolls her eyes and is like, yeah, that'd be great if, if it did that, but it doesn't. So, you know, as wives, as yeah. wives tend to do. Yes. Yeah. So, as I was kind of explaining this to him, 
another person walked up named uh, named Richie Norton, and he runs a company called Product, and they make physical products for entrepreneurs and, and businesses. And so I was explaining it to him, and Pat was getting excited about it, and Richie was like, let's do it. Let's make one. And I think if I wouldn't have been standing next to anybody or – if Richie hadn't walked up and already knew who Pat was, um, Pat had had him on his podcast already. So they had a kind of a rapport as well. So it was a little bit of serendipity of seeing something that annoyed me that I had used myself and owned one and explaining it to somebody and then having someone come up that would actually be interested in helping us make it. Well, there you go. You had somebody who's known for being kind of inspirational, kind of kick you in the ass a little bit. That's pretty cool. That's a great story. And so from there, I mean, from there, it took 14, 15 months until we launched it. It was, so it was like a really slow and steady process. So you had to obviously develop a prototype, right? So how many protos did you go through? Probably, I would say there's about 10, about 10 total prototypes. And it was slow and steady at first. We had a call with Cole who works on the product team and he is more the engineer designer person that took our crazy ideas of what we needed and how big it should be and what shape it should be. And what is, is there a hand grip and what shape should that be? And, you know, kind of many calls, many sketches that we sent him or pictures of holding other objects. I remember sending him a picture of a, like a, like a spray part of a hose. And I like, Ooh, I like the grooves of the finger grips on this, on this hose sprayer thing. And so it was, it was a lot of time spent doing that. And then he would make something and 3d print it and ship it to us or bring it to us and kind of show us and give feedback and, you know, prototype after prototype and, and just kind of continually slowly making changes for months. What, uh, what would you say surprised you about that whole process? Because that's obviously, I assume that's the first time you've gone through something like that. I would say the biggest surprise was when we actually started to show it to people in person and them to either get it immediately or just watching them use it for the first time and not having to explain to them how it worked and watching them figure out that, oh, the legs kind of swing open in this way and now I see how much faster this is. And so that was probably the most surprising part was once we got a physical version and we started to make it a little more public and show it at events or online as well, the amount of excitement that came from it, I think really pushed us to actually go to a launch phase. If we were showing it to people and they weren't so positive about it, we probably wouldn't have proceeded. So Caleb, since it's a, it was, I think unfamiliar territory for you to start something like this, a physical product. Um, you have mentioned some people, but can you just tell us uh, who's sort of the core working team on something like this and what, what are their roles? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's me uh, and then Pat Flynn of smart passive income. He and I are basically partners on this and we have split the costs and we'll split the profit after and then we've been working with Product, which is a combination of the word proud and product. And they're a small and agile team of about four people, I think, that have helped us engineer, design, develop, prototype, and start to manufacture this thing. So they have one person on their team is, like I said, the designer and engineer. That's Cole. TFN is someone who facilitates the manufacturing and is 
fluent in Chinese as well. And so he's been helping us get the physical prototypes made and will help us in the foreseeable future start the manufacturing. And then Richie and Jace are also on the leadership and they helped with introductions into influencers and feedback on the product and all of those types of things. So they, they are someone that we've paid, we paid separately. So they're not owners of the product in any way, but the more of them we make, the more that they profit and how they build their margins into helping us manufacture them. So for someone who's unfamiliar with this process, which would be me, I'd wave my hand about that. You have the initial sort of um, startup budget, right? And that came from you and Pat. And then you take it to Kickstarter, which allows you to do what? Continue to manufacture? Did you guys, I guess my question is, did you guys finance the prototyping and then the Kickstarter finances the mass production? Is that how that works? Yeah, I mean, we could we could take some of the Kickstarter funds and kind of back date and, you know, pay ourselves back for what we've paid. But we'll probably just kind of call that a wash for, for last year because it was all done in 2018. And then going forward, treat it as uh, manufacturing expenses. But yeah, it was kind of a slow and steady of, it's going to be a few thousand dollars to get started with this firm to, you know, kind of get the ideas out of your head, start making physical prototypes and things like that. And then each stage from there was, okay, this specific prototype is going to cost this much to get made. Then it got more and more expensive as we were making better versions at the end that were actually made of metal or aluminum versus the ones we were 3D printing or making out of plastic or wood that we were just kind of testing features, those were cheaper to get made. But each each step, it was like a little bit more expensive, a little bit more money, and just kind of kept building from there. Caleb, talk a little bit about the branding, you know, even down to naming and uh, what you wanted the product to look like and what kind of, you know, branding you've actually put on the product, et cetera. So to start with a name, um, we had some bad names. Um, the, it kind of looks like a Australian boomerang, not one of the ones you might buy at a store that's kind of perfectly bent, but kind of an old school one. We Googled it and it's like, oh, it looks just like a boomerang. So we're going to call it Zoomerang. And I'm really glad we didn't call it Zoomerang. And then it's, its primary function would be for someone that vlogs, which is you know a video log, so filming themselves now. And so we almost called it vlog pod, but that was being used in a bunch of different ways, you know, podcasts about vlogging, or there were other websites about it. And we also didn't want to pigeonhole it too much as a brand into just being this thing for vloggers because it can be used by other people that just want to put a camera or their phone on a tripod or film themselves when they travel or what have you. So as we started to have a physical version that opened and closed quickly, Someone said that it's kind of like a switchblade because you can open the blade and close the blade really quickly and you can switch between the two modes quickly. And so that's kind of where switch pod came from. And the pod part is just the second half of tripod. So we kind of were thinking that that would be the second half of the name anyway. So we were kind of just trying to think of a first half. And then you, you asked other other parts of kind of branding. Um, so we we hired someone off of Fiverr for probably about a thousand dollars to, to work up a logo. And pr- what they gave was pretty, pretty basic, just 
a word mark with a logo mark. So just a little graphic design of an S and a P that kind of looks like it's also a tripod and then a, a specific font and then a specific color of yellow and, and gray basically. And from that, I had a, in my studio, I have paper rolls that I use for photography and video purposes. And one of those happened to be yellow. So I was like, great. So we'll use that for all the product shots and make sure that when we're editing the photos in Lightroom and the video, that that yellow matches up precisely with the logo. And it, it, to me, like I thought I was going to get sick of the color yellow. As I think my wife did because she helped with a lot of the photos and the <laughs> editing. You know, some days like I don't want to see the color yellow anymore. Right. Um, but I think it's, it's a color that's not used very much and yellow and black together stands out from other things. So I think it's, it's been a fun, uh, a fun kind of use of a single color for our brand to use. And then as far as how we wanted the product to look and feel some of the other options that are out there and what people have been using are plastic, are bendable, are breakable. You know, I've had people tweet me since we've launched SwitchPod on Kickstarter telling me and showing me pictures of a gorilla pod that's broken on the first day that they've owned it. And so first and foremost, we want it to be durable and that's why it's made of metal and not plastic. And second of all, we want it to be smooth and sleek and have nice curves and grooves and lines on it. Um, you know, there's no way we can compete with what someone like Apple can do with a product, but it being completely matte black and having some smooth curves and things like that, that's what we wanted to accentuate with, with the product as well. Right. So then you are in manufacturing right now. Can people get a switch pod now? So right now the fastest way to get one is to still back the Kickstarter campaign. It's still live until the end of March, 2019. And we're sending the first ones off the line to the people that backed us on Kickstarter first. Um, but yeah, we're working through manufacturing right now. And kind of the next steps are, we're getting molds made so that you can make a bunch of them. And those molds are what we're, you know, fundraising for because between the developing and the prototyping and getting the molds made, that's where the hundred thousand dollar number that we wanted to raise on Kickstarter came from. And then after that even is the cost of making each individual one and packaging each one and shipping each one. So that's what we'll be using the Kickstarter funds to pay for is to now making, I think it's about, over 3,500 switch pods so far have been pre-ordered through Kickstarter. That's great. That's great. Uh, congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you. Um, and then just in terms of distribution, how are you guys, what's that model look like right now? So we're, we're working through that right now. Cause we do want to have, you know, the, the second the Kickstarter ends, we want people to still be able to pre-order it. So there are basically a few options we can, do what a lot of Kickstarter campaigns do now, which is go to Indiegogo and then they allow you to do a pre-order there. But then, you know, Indiegogo is going to take their percent and we could also sell it directly through our own kind of site that is e-commerce through Shopify or what have you. Um, and then we could also go into retail. And so we're having some of those conversations of what stores should it be in? Should we allow it? to be in retail. Do we want it on certain websites like Amazon or what have you? So we're, we're working through that right now while we're mid campaign so that at the end of the campaign, people can still pre-order it. Right. Smart. All right. Um, so Caleb, this is the part of the creative how 
uh, podcast where we deliver on our show promise. And really what that's about, this whole, it's intended to be utilitarian for our listeners. And what that translates to is the top three to four things someone who wants to become a video creator, such as yourself, can start doing as soon as they turn this thing off. So tonight, tomorrow, whenever, um, they will be on the road to becoming that. And it can be granular. It can be 30,000 foot view, really whatever you feel like would be the best tips and the most, again, action oriented, um, would be as helpful as possible. Okay. So the first thing that I'd recommend if someone does want to be a video creator, whether that's making videos for other people and getting paid to do so, or you're trying to build an audience online that is video based. Number one would be, I would, I would get your gear right. So I'm not necessarily saying that you have to buy something, but if there's that one thing that kind of keeps you from recording videos, if it's like, oh, I just need a cell phone clip and a little tripod and then I can hold my cell phone better to film videos or you're, you're not happy with your lighting or you need a microphone, whatever that thing is, it's just better to, to buy it and get it out of the way and get your setup ready so then some of your excuses are gone. So that would be the first thing. The second thing would be, trying to figure out why people would be interested in in following you or watching whatever it is you're making and putting yourself in their shoes or actually coming up with a person that you already know in real life that you can talk to. Because when you're just trying to present to a camera, it's awkward. You don't necessarily, it's not just like talking to another human and it takes a lot of time and practice and energy to get used to just looking into the the tiny little lens that I'm looking through right now and getting used to talking to it. So what I've done myself and I've recommended other people do is print out a picture of someone you know in real life that fits the persona of the person you're trying to help Hmm. and put that right under the lens, tape it under the lens so that you can trick your mind into actually talking to that person. So maybe you have a different tone or if it's someone you know really well and they're a friend, you might have inside jokes or what have you and just you might speak a little differently than if you were trying to speak to the, the endless anonymous people on the internet. So that that's another kind of connection thing that I recommend. The third thing would be as you're building up your, your personality and your brand and that sort of thing is you don't have to be what everyone else is on the internet. You don't have to be over the top or loud or obnoxious or anything like that just because certain people do that and they have a bunch of people that follow them. You should just be you. You should be however you are. I'm a pretty calm and sarcastic and down to earth person in real life. And so that's what I am in my videos and I'm not trying to act to be someone that I'm not. And so I think that that's a very important thing for people that are just getting started to be okay with you being you. And it'll take you a while of making videos before you watch yourself and it's actually you, you'll kind of have an act that you put on and it just takes, it takes a lot of time to get used to that. And the fourth thing would be Early on, especially if you're trying to grow an audience, if you're trying to get your name out there and get your videos found, you should definitely make videos and content that people would be searching for. If you just make things that are vlogs about your daily life or title things in a way that they're not going to be searched for at all, then that's not going to help you get views and start to grow your audience and get subscribers. I think a lot of people see people that have huge audiences and they title a video, she did what, or how could they, or what is this? (laughs) And 
when you have a certain amount of followers, when you have hundreds of thousands or millions of followers online, people are already used to seeing your stuff and clicking on it and knowing what to expect. And so they're trying to make titles and thumbnails that are against everyone else's, but they already have the reach. They already have people that are used to who they are, but you can't do that when you don't have an existing audience, when you don't have people that know what to expect by clicking on your video. So when you have 10 subscribers, a hundred subscribers, you're only going to get 10 or hundred people to see that video potentially in their YouTube app or in their feed. And that's who you're trying to convince. But if you're making videos that are related to search terms or things that are popular or product reviews or what have you, those things will show up more in people's search results. And so that's what you should be making videos about early on to start to get people to watch your stuff. So those will be the four things. Uh, let me try to recap them. Two was tape a picture of someone. Four was make search things. One was get your gear right. And three was be yourself. Don't, be you. don't, don't worry. We'll get them in order. That, <laughs> that was, was all, that, that was, was out of order, but it works. Yeah. I was that was taking great notes. stuff. That was great stuff, man. Really appreciate cool. it. Really a lot of good detail. I think people are going to get a lot of benefit out of that. And now I'm going to throw a curveball to you. What are okay. the creative house for someone who wants to make a product? Go. Definitely make a lot of prototypes or versions and show them to real people that you don't know. Because I could show prototypes to my wife or to my parents or what have you. And they might be like, oh, this is great, honey. Like, keep it up. But going to actual events and showing it to strangers or kind of using the product and having people walk by and be like, what is that? And hold, have them hold it and use it and give you feedback on how much it should cost or if they change anything. That was the biggest thing for SwitchPod as we developed it for the past year. Cool. Well, hey, thanks for that. I know we didn't talk about that, but way to think oh, on no, your feet. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say the one about taping the picture of your, your sort of um, target audience on the uh, below the lens is a really cool idea. Yeah, I know some people do three or four people. I try to think oh. of one one person. Yeah, and I've even actually said to the camera like, "Hey, <laughs> Drew," or "Hey, Steve," and then cut there, and then yep. be like, "In this video, we're gonna," and it just kind of puts you in the mindset of talking to that kind of person or that That's specific great. person. That's great. Um, so, Caleb. Please, you know, tell tell people where they can find you on the web and social media and, and everywhere. So my handle pretty much everywhere is Caleb Wojcik, which is C-A-L-E-B-W-O-J-C-I-K. I use that on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. Those are the main three places. Excellent. And then how about some info on SwitchPod? And then you can find SwitchPod at switchpod.co, so .co. And while the campaign's live, that'll redirect you to the Kickstarter page. And after that, it'll redirect you to where you could pre-order it later. Awesome, man. Well, hey, dude, this was a chock full of a ton of information. I think there's a lot of ways to take it, both if, as a video creator, but also if you've got a little entrepreneurial spirit and want to do a get that product out of your head and, and into production, I think that you're also going to get a lot of stuff from this as well, man. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, of course. Have a good one. Thanks, Caleb. Wow, that was the story of a true creator. Caleb saw open spaces in, in multiple platforms and created something from nothing. He really is fearless and, again, the purest of creatives. He's either doing it digitally and instructing people or he's actually taking it upon himself to make a product that's going to change how video creators like himself approach their craft. 
So everybody, please check out the show notes. You can learn more about Caleb, more about the SwitchPod, more about DIY Video Guy. And you can also follow us at Creative How Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Hey, Jed, did you hear our kick-ass intro music? Shockingly, that's out of our technical wheelhouse here at Creative How. That type of sick sound design is a White Noise Lab original. White Noise Lab is a music composition and sound design studio that works with agencies, production companies, and brands on projects for film, broadcast, interactive websites, corporate videos, video games, and experimental projects. The chances that that movie trailer you just saw on you know, YouTube that's probably a White Noise Lab original more often than not. So whether you're looking to fulfill your sound design needs or simply need someone to collaborate with on an experimental project or maybe an experimental podcast, check out whitenoiselab.com. That's whitenoiselab.com.